Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Okay. Hello. Hey, hey, Gordo. I missed you. I know. You were gone gone. for so long. For like a month. Where'd you go? Well, I was in Chicago for a wedding. Yeah. Which was very nice for my friends from my master's program so it was nice to see everyone again it was a good wedding it was good it wasn't one of those unhappy weddings where you're like oh this isn't gonna go well it was it was cool (laughs) they had it in like an antique shop oh my goodness like a really cool venue yeah um young intellectual wedding yes yes um but it was a really cool wedding nice seeing all of our friends we had a lot of fun for four days lots of drinking that's good and partying so it was nice yeah Back to all of our old old haunts. How many people are married versus not? So of our friend group? Yeah. In your millennial friend group. Oh, from my master's program or just like in general? Well, they're mostly millennials, right? Yeah. People from your master's program. Well, he's the first to get married. Oh. Our friend was married. So people aren't getting married the way they already divorced. He's older. He's like in his mid thirties. Still. That's early for a divorce. I didn't get divorced till I was forty three. You know, you know. A lot of people like I have friends that have friends that have gotten divorced. Like, it's much more common because people get married in their 20s and then are like, really? Don't like each other and then get But divorced. then a lot of people don't get married at all. Yeah. So I think there's like a disconnect. So. And then where did you go? Then I went to Greece. For how long? Three weeks? weeks? Two, two weeks. weeks. Which is really nice. We did Athens for a couple of days. Then we went, we got a car, went down to the Peloponnese. You drove. Drove. Who drove? You Jeff. or Jeff? Jeff, Jeff. drove. But it was, it was easy. Like, I had data, so you could just, you know, put it on Google Maps. That's and so easy. Super easy. That's so the nice. The highways. You didn't have to follow a map. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. And, I mean, all the, like, highway stuff was all in English, too. Mm-hmm. So you could have easily done it, too. No without. left side. Yeah. Right just, side. Just, like, driving in America. Easy. Yeah. Um, and then we were in Peloponnese near, like, Nathleon for a couple of days. Um, we, you know, hit up all the sites. We went to Mycenae and... Kirins and Nemea and Epidauros. I haven't been to any of these places. So cool. I can't imagine. It was so cool to see uh, Messine. Really? Because you're like, this is the house. With where, the Lion Gate. Yeah, but like all the stuff like Adamarna. Like, yeah. Like this is where the pottery, this is like where they produce those stars that ended up at Amarna. So cool. So it's cool to see both ends of the spectrum. Um, we went to a bunch of the museums there, which are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Ate a lot of good food. What was your, what, when you went to a restaurant, what would you order? I mean, they just, you know, had very traditional Greek food. So you'd get like, um, like souvlaki or, um, like lamb. Yeah. We had a lot of lamb, salads, lots of fried cheese. Lots of fried cheese. It's good. There's nothing wrong with fried cheese. Yeah. Nothing at all. It was good. Well, I was here. Actually, I wasn't. I went yeah, to, I was to gone too. too. Okay, fine. So I, I went to Egypt and I went to Prague. I went to Cairo yeah, and Prague. Um, they they got COVID at the ICOM conference oh, okay. before me, yes. and then I was at a very small conference at which the COVID people were not present, mm. and I did not get COVID Good. at that conference. It was it was tiny. I mean, I gave a paper to you know less than twenty people. That's nice though, in a way. Yeah, and in Cairo, I worked at the Egyptian Museum with uh, the postdoc who's here, Stefania mm-hmm. Mainieri, which was um, not as successful as I would have liked, and I'll leave it there. And I got incredibly ill at the end of my Cairo trip, which so often happens, so often. And I brought my illness with me, not a communicable COVID illness, but a food and waterborne illness. I brought that with me to Prague, um, where I lost 10 pounds, which is exciting, but I think I gained it all back. It's fine. Um, This is the It's never fun to lose weight from an illness. No, it's not. And it's like, you don't feel good. Um, but Prague was beautiful. I'd never been. Mm. And I walked up and down um, the, the streets to the Charles Bridge and back and forth. And it was it was really nice. And I didn't Pretty see nice. anyone for two days before the conference began. Mm. So I would just have dinners by myself in like the touristy Ooh. square area and 
would get work done. It was it was nice. Mm-hmm. It was good. I enjoyed myself. I used to so. travel alone sometimes. Yeah, but I don't want to travel anymore. I'm I'm old now. I'm <laughs> done. <laughs> I'm tired. You travel. I leave it to the youth of the world, and I'll just I'll stay home yep. and work on my stuff. We knock on wood had a very positive travel experience. Good. A little couple hiccups with like running cars and stuff like that. Um, but flights and stuff. Well, when we left. Um, Chicago, our flight was delayed, and we had a connecting flight in Rome, and we got we were like delayed like three hours, and our connecting flight in Rome was an hour layover. Oh we my were god! Like, oh my god! So we got into Rome, and we literally like booked it. Yes. To the we like ran through the airport to get to the um our next flight. Yeah. But they delayed that one. Oh my god! So it was like perfect. So they both got delayed. So it ended up working out. And my flight back from Prague was through Warsaw on Lot direct to LA, like one of those 12 hour things. And it was full of, and I was at the back of the plane. How did this happen? I don't know. And I was full of drunk. It was full of drunken people. You know, the kind that stand in the aisles for hours and talk with each other until finally they fall asleep in a drunken stupor. And a seat was back the whole time, the whole time, like meals, everything. The seat was back and I had no room. And then in the middle of the flight, I'm trying to sleep. And this woman stands next to me and says, I need your middle seat. I'm like, don't take my middle seat, man. Don't take my middle seat. And it turns out some weird bleeding man was threatening her, um, bleeding from his head and was yelling at her. It was awful. And so I had to give up my middle seat. And then we were all squuzzed together like sardines. And then I landed and I don't want to travel anymore. I'm done, done, done. I'm so done. Yeah, we have the, Mm. on our flight back here from New Jersey, we had the pilot come on the thing. Is there any doctors on board? Oh, no. And we were like, well, because like... Of Egyptology! That's what we, you know, there's the meme where it's like... And Jeff and I were like, looked at each other and we were like... <laughs> Don't do the meme! Don't and then like two people came up that were doctors. And it was like, literally, they wanted to give this lady an Advil. Because she had a neck ache. Really? And they're not allowed to give any medication to people on the airplane. Like, passengers. Why didn't she have her own Advil on she board? Did. And you, they had to get a doctor, and they had to write down the doctor's like little doctor number. Oh my god! But like god. both doctors were like, I don't have my card with me. Doctors have little doctor numbers. I guess they, yeah, they have oh, little. They should have like, a memorizer. Yeah, something. but they needed the card, like physically. Huh. They had their numbers, but they were like, oh, we need to see the physical card, because we were sitting in the exit row right by the galley, so we were like eavesdropping on everything. So I was like, oh, what's happening? But it was yeah, this lady had a neck ache, and they wanted to give her some Advil. So the one doctor was like. Well, I have Advil in my bag. I can just give her my own Advil. And they're like, okay, that's fine. As long as it's like a transaction between you guys. Oh, my God. I was like, can't even give people Advil? I can see if they were giving her like a Percocet. But <laughs> they just like, we're giving her some Advil. <laughs> but I don't know. I guess you could be allergic to it and die and then sue them. Everything's litigious. Everything's litigious. Except when it should be more litigious and then nobody and then cares. Not, yeah. And then no one gives a shit. And then let the rich people have everything they want. But that's a different topic for another time. But it was nice to be, have a little break and get stuff done. And now it feels like I wasn't gone at all. And You're back. Back into the swing of things. You're back. You're School teaching. You're doing teaching. everything. Yeah. 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 So it's good. And we're back. Yeah. Hey. So. Welcome. We know you missed us so much. Yes. And for those of you who are just tuning in now and haven't checked out the Substack, do check out our Substack because we got images from. Dr. Nick Reeves, who has made a really interesting discovery, looking at the factum art images from the tomb of Tutankhamun that indicate the cartouche of, wait, is the cartouche of I used to be the cartouche of Tutankhamun, which means that the person doing the investiture of the dead person in the tomb, who is now I doing it for Tutankhamun, was actually Tutankhamun doing it for somebody else. Presumably, in this case... Nefertiti. Or presumably or in this case, Ankh-Heperay's... Yeah. Whoever um, that was. Smenkare, whoever that is. If yeah. it's Nefertari, if it's somebody else, doesn't really... Nefertiti, sorry. Um, doesn't really matter. And and But it's doing it for whoever Ankh-Heperay Smenkare is. shows that the tomb was not originally touched. Yes. And it's very compelling evidence for those people that have discounted some of the more art historical arguments about Nicholas Reeves' theory they can look at this text and they can look at the reed leaf that is clear yeah. as day and they can look at a hepper beetle and the triple hepper beetles that have been extended. They can think a little more carefully about the weird way that the that I's throne name is written, which is very, it's wrong, mm-hmm. but they don't want to make too many changes because then it'll yep. be obvious. 
So everyone, you know, get your big boy pants on and see what you can do with this without freaking out. Yeah. Um, because this topic really does make people freak out and and it, make, it creates a whole lot of bitterness. And I don't really... I don't get it. Yeah, I don't it, get it. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish, like, Tut and... We know so many things in his tomb weren't his originally. I don't know how it really... I don't understand. Like, if anything, it makes it more interesting. And the that fact this, that there like, could be... Drama and tumult was happening at this time period. We know blinds existed in these yeah. Valley of the Hormheb's King's tombs. tombs. The fact that Hormheb's tomb, Seti's tomb, all, all of these Valley of the King's tombs behind the well room had a blind. And, if the, and then the well room stopped being created with the pit in the ground. Okay, fine. We know this. Yep. If this is a blind and there is more behind it, whether there's it's stuff chock full of treasure or not is or immaterial, <laughs> could just be empty, but wouldn't it be cool to discover if there's if there's some sort of a cavity behind mm -hmm. that back wall? And why that makes people flip their shit, I don't know. Well, I, I, to me, it's like, oh, I wasn't the one to figure it out. It was someone else. It's all about egos. Yeah. It's all about territoriality. You know, it's all about... The one to be like, ah! It's all about politics. It's all about who likes whom. And it's, it's really tedious. But yeah, so... But we, check out our Substack yeah. because we have an image that Nick Reeves provided that was supposed to be in his article in The Guardian mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't, The Guardian didn't use, I don't know why, but I got that from Nick, so I put it in our little, mm -hmm. just a mini, it's not even an article, it's yeah. just a mini little thing linking it to other articles. Do we link to The Guardian article? No. Oh, okay. And so it'll give you a, a little bit of an update on, yeah. on what all of that work is about. And Nick Reeves will be presenting his argument at the Tutankhamun conference in Luxor, um, next month, mm -hmm. I believe, which I will not be present at. No. You? No. No. It'd be nice if they were streaming it, but... It would be, but I doubt they will. I don't think they are. No. But yeah, so... And hopefully then he'll publish it, write mm -hmm. out something more... Mm -hmm. Oh, he'll um, publish it. Concrete, he always so. does. But yeah, I mean, his other stuff's all available online. Yeah. So you can read up on the past... Um, his past argumentation, mainly art historical, mm -hmm. and faces and stuff, and... For some of it, the, the most recent, it. but the first one, the tomb of Nefertiti question mark is really a holistic examination of tomb architecture, architecture yeah. uh, comparisons to other tombs yeah. where there's um, a possible widening of the burial mm -hmm. chamber that used to be a corridor. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's accepted that like the tomb itself is like abnormal yeah. and isn't like yeah. how a tomb should be. Yeah. And so, yeah, something happened at some point. And, and the then, direction of, you know, the way it turns is yeah. more for women. Yeah. Things like that. And then there's updates, like, uh, about what the Getty mm -hmm. Conservation Institute found in terms of the paints yep. to prove that Howard Carter had actually taken a sledgehammer to the back wall. He thought there was something else. He thought it was a blind, too. He knows his Valley of the King's tombs. He knows where blinds should be, that this was a wall in front of a further mm -hmm. corridor extension. And he just took a sledgehammer a little bit off to, I think, the left. But then he had a big hole in the bedrock and he had to cover it with plaster and use 1920s paints to match exactly the yellow and even got daubs of yeah. gray paint to match Did the fake fungus, or no, the real fungus. He faked it with his paint um, to match the fungus that's on the, the tomb of Tutankhamun. So Howard Carter thought this was true as well. And Nick Reeves is following in his footsteps. Yeah. So, yeah. Something's there. Something's there, but no, they don't want it revealed yet, whoever yeah. they are. There could be many days. Yeah. So check it out. See what you think. Yeah. I think it's pretty compelling. There's yeah. definitely a relief under that. There's definitely a relief. So. And there's definitely an extension of the Hepper yeah, Beetle, the bottom one. The yeah. Different. We were wondering, uh, Jeff and I were talking about it, like if like RTI or something would show, yeah. you know, like the stratigraphy of the paint. Right. If there was like layers versus like one layer versus multiple so you could see if things were like well, we have a high quality image we should we should de-stretch it we should do, we, do so other things we did do de-stretch kind of it and it doesn't show anything oh it's frustrating and she even pulled it into uh photoshop and yeah. we were doing different contrasting and, and it didn't show anything no honestly the naked eye shows it's you the just most. better yeah okay. okay so maybe rti just getting different light like angle different but you can see the angles. neb underneath that yeah and the beetle. you can see where yeah. the old body used to end and that they extended yes. it down Yes, and that would be right. the Neb Hepru Ray. Yeah, and we know that the early form of Tutankhamun was Neb Hepru Ray with three Hepru beetles mm -hmm. written instead of the Hepru with the three plural strokes. Yep. And so it makes perfect sense. And I's name was not written that, that way. So mm -hmm. interesting stuff. Yeah, it's very yeah. compelling. Very compelling. So get your, as I say, get your 
big boy pants on yeah. or big girl pants on. I think that's um, exciting. And yeah, and stop trying to tear it down and saying, oh, he's just so self-serving and wants everyone to look at it. That's not what this is. Yeah, why, why would he? No. How does it serve him in any way? No, it doesn't actually. It doesn't serve him. It actually hurts him in terms of what people do yeah. personally. But look at the look at the information, read it carefully, think about it, and you might actually see that there is much more to this mm -hmm. than um, petty politics and petty human agendas yes so but today yes we're doing our october patron of patreon questions i love this so then our patrons get to ask special questions of their yes. own and we get to answer them and we always have a lot of fun doing this yeah we have some fun questions today um so we can get started yeah uh, so tanya asks hi i have this question for kara not for you not for me i guess <laughs> i'll include you Gods and spirits seem to have played an integral part in the ancient Egyptians' lives. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there may have been any atheists at the time? Mm -hmm. Some people who may, like, who maybe didn't believe in the afterlife. Thank you for your val valuable perspective, as always. Yeah, it's tricky. In the ancient world, you very rarely see evidence of non-belief, cynical, cold-hearted, this is all there is non-belief. And it may seem hard, it seem hard for us to understand, but I would rather turn it and ask you, Tanya, how strange it is that we in the modern world are so disconnected to all of the, the spirits that could potentially be around us now, because it's not a normal human feature to look at a river and just think water, flowing through the earth, whatever. H2O. That's yeah. it. It's Hydrogen done. Cynical, like, yeah, it's just water flowing through the earth from a higher place, and that's just, it's got a geography, and it's done. W because most people of the ancient world or people embedded in their environment would look at that river and they would think there is a spirit connected to that. There is a river spirit. That is a spirit that I must connect with. I must give offerings to. I must be associated with that spirit. There is a spirit of this tree. That tree is alive and I can talk to all of this grove of trees or something. Um, there is a spirit in the sun. There's a spirit in the moon. There is um, a spirit in the earth itself. And this, the, from which we are disconnected, mm -hmm. and I think it's pretty clear how we're disconnected from it because we use the earth as if it is a simple material that is meant to serve us mm -hmm. feed us give you know give us whatever we want but we don't ever give back we don't treat it with a sustainment and it's it's not something that is respected from its own side and if we did that i don't think we would just pull gold and minerals and diamonds from the ground the way that we do oil water uh, i think there would be more of a give and take respect and i think in the ancient world there was more of this understanding, yes, imposed by society, imposed by temples from on high, but I think there's, this is another interesting part for me, where when we think of spirituality, we think of religion, mm -hmm. and we think of religious priests, men, patriarchy, power systems, telling us, if you don't believe, you will go to hell, or if you don't believe it's something, moral religion. It, is, it is horrible, something horrible will happen yeah. to you, and it is a method of control, which has make, made us, many of us, me included, having grown up Roman Catholic with all of those priests and all the, mm -hmm. the sins of those fathers, and we can let that be, but... But it makes you turn against the entirety of spiritual existence and you say nothing exists in this world. And I would just like to encourage you to think that in the ancient world and for hundreds of thousands of years, people have connected in their own communities, in their own local ways with the earth around them, with the... the water systems, with the earth systems, with anything growing, any sort of um, corn that may have fed you or, or wheat that may have fed you, whatever it is, there's spirit in everything. And that spirit is not necessarily connected with an oppressive power yeah. system. And so I would, and, and I think the ancient Egyptians would have disconnected those two things as well, because that oppressive power system of the temple and the pharaoh and his chief priest would have been the top 5% yeah, of like society. That's people, it. No. It's not like, oh, you have to go to church. To yeah. be, otherwise, you're a bad Christian and then you right. get into heaven. Like, normal Egyptians 
didn't need to have any interaction with the temple. No. Right? It was... It they was, were it, lucky if they got to yeah, have that but it, interaction. it was the house of the god. Yeah. Doing its own thing. Yeah. Regardless of what you did in your life, yeah. it would have happened because the king was doing his job and the yeah. priests were doing their job. And they lived it. You didn't it. matter. <laughs> in other words, if you lived an experience in which you were so embedded in your landscape that the Nile flooded every summer and left this silt mm-hmm. as a gift to you and you were able to just sprinkle your seeds in there and grow your next crop... You become a believer by that very experience of the earth giving back to you and then you not fucking up the earth in turn and taking it all for yourself. And I think belief is a, the wrong word. Yeah. It was, it's not a matter of belief or not, like yeah. how we think of it today. It just was. You're living within like, it. Like, it is. Yeah. Like, the sun is, Ra is a god. Yeah. Like, there was no, like, do you believe the sun is a god or not? It just, that's, it was. And how Similar often... to maybe how we think of science. Like, I don't understand how quantum physics works, but, like, I'm like, it works, it's there, it's happening. But just in today's increasingly anti-patriarchal world, Mm -hmm. in which we look at what we've done to our landscape, and you talk to people at your Trader Joe's or at some festival or at schools with your kids or wherever it is you find yourself, and people are like, oh, Mother Earth is pissed off. Mm -hmm. And the ancient Egyptians would have felt this if the Nile flooded its banks and never receded and it was just a raging river of water something's wrong that that not doing his job people would have done more supplications Mm -hmm. they would have been like what do we need to do to appease you to get things back into order i'm not saying that that's scientifically how things necessarily would have worked but i am saying that we inherently know that we're out of balance right now Mm -hmm. Whether we want to believe it or not is a different thing, whether we're Christians or or Muslims or Hindus or whatever it is. I think there are many people, whether they're embedded in the spiritualism of this earth or not, they know that something that something's janky, something's out of balance, and that we're not we're not doing it right. So these ideas of atheism versus not uh, be, being a believer, I don't think they work for for antiquity in the same way that they work for today. You don't have the power structures in the ancient world the same way that you have the power structure set up today options i know right it wasn't like oh i'm gonna believe in this set of gods and not the others it was like they were all there and syncretized in different ways and just was yeah yeah so i think yeah there's a whole lot more one could say about this about human beings vis-a-vis nature and understanding themselves as the orderers of nature the ones in control of nature and how that does find itself within ancient Egyptian society and it does expand into a post-antiquity, medieval and pre-modern world and that that human hubris is, we, we are living the end result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much more that one could say. Yeah. So it's it's a deep um, topic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty telling that like every human culture ever comes up with some type of belief system, yeah. spiritual system. Because there's something innate about humans that we, you know, see faces and things. We find order and chaos and like to have that sense of, um, it provides a sense of peace when you know maybe something bigger is controlling things. Or you that know, you're a part of something that bigger. That you're not just some tiny, lonely. Some, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, everything mm-hmm. will be okay. It mm-hmm. provides some sense of control and that we are all connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another thing. It's It would be a rare thing in the ancient world to die alone in your apartment yeah. without anyone noticing for two weeks. It's not going to happen. Everyone's connected to someone else. It's hard to be disconnected from the spirits of the world when you're constantly with everyone in their presence. Yeah. This is a very modern phenomenon. So I'll leave it there. But I love the question. Yeah. And, it's what um, we always talk about. It is. It like is. How religious. Yeah. I think there's, isn't it, um, Barry Kemp has an article about like how religious were the ancient Egyptians and yeah. thinking about like what is religion? They know. lived it. They didn't mm-hmm. choose it. It yeah. was their embedded world. What's your legacy? Miami-Dade residents produce six pounds of trash daily. Much of that is plastic and will remain in our environment long after we're gone. Be part of the solution. Eliminate single-use plastic. More at miamidade.gov slash plasticfree305. And we, we need a little more of that, you know? Definitely of being more, of, instead of like overlords of the earth, mm-hmm. like partners yeah. with things. I think yeah. that would definitely yeah. be much um, more sustainable. Okay. 
Changing Veins, Drew Varney the Vampire. Um, asks, Drew Varney what? Drew Varney the Vampire. Oh, Varney the Vampire. Oh, yeah. Yes. He always has great questions. So, in the same vein as the spooky episode, it's about ghosts and ghouls. What's your favorite folklore, myth, or story from ancient Egypt? Oh, um, it's probably Kansuem Hub and the Ghost, mm -hmm. because that's the one that connects with the... We, we were just reading it in late Egyptian, mm. which was really fun. And it connects the most with my coffin reuse mm -hmm. work. It's, it's a really tough text. It's very broken. It only has sections preserved, but uh, they found a new text in Vienna, and they've been able to link it up and, and make more connections. But essentially, it's about this high priest who is getting haunted by this really rich dude. And mm -hmm. he's like, I, I can't be at peace until you give me a really nice tomb again. And so the high priest Kansuemhab is like, okay, I'll give you all this really nice stuff. I'll give you a tomb. I'll give you a coffin. And, and then he's somehow happy again. So it's, it's kind of a twisted commentary on what rich people need to be fed in order to be appeased. It's the same as today. It's like, what you know, as society is falling apart, we still are giving rich people taxes, uh -huh. tax breaks. Thinking somehow we'll it'll somehow it'll create jobs. It'll make everything better. Down. It'll trickle down to us. And there's this idea that we're appeasing these these rich people. You appease them in life. You appease them in death. And this is somehow going to work for all of us. But it's um, it's got a real twist of social commentary mm -hmm. to it. I don't know if that's the the best spooky story because I just made it all Marxist and shit. But it, it is my it is my favorite. What's your favorite? I have a couple, but I think I really like Shipwreck Sailor. Yeah. Just because it's so like fantastical and fun. That the asteroid killed yeah, his whole family. Yeah, the asteroid and yeah, the snake and it's just a yeah. fun story. Yeah. Um, but I also really like all the all the text uh, letters to the dead where it's like stop haunting me like. I didn't marry someone that quickly after you died, my wife, and stop haunting my ass, and I gave you all your stuff. Like, why yeah. are you still? Like, those are fun just yeah. to get a, like, more personal look at things. I also, I remember, this is, like, a little later, but there was a Coptic story about one of the saints getting haunted at the Temple of Abydos by Bess, and they made Bess into, like, a demon like a Christian demon. Yeah. And he was like haunting the saint and he had to do all this stuff to get Bess to like go away. Oh and my goodness. it took place at the Temple of Abydos and it was just a fun mixture of like ancient Egypt with like modern Coptic. Right. Yeah. So that was fun. That's really cool. I mean, yeah, of Those course, what is, what it becomes demonic, but, mm -hmm. but like, goat-headed gods, goats, yeah. and, and like best-like best figurines and scary things like, like that. Like jumping around and like scaring people at yeah. the Temple of Abydos. Yeah. It's like funny. And any view of like the Book of Earth or the Book of Caverns is is horribly frightening, with all of these different yeah. demonic and demonic like daimon from yeah. the Greek, yeah. the, these presences of power that have these weird faces and weird mixed up bodies mm -hmm. where you like have a beetle's head and a human body and a weird. It's just you know it's meant to to strike you with awe as something is not quite of this earth. Mm -hmm. It's of someplace else, but like a mixed up um, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Those things are always very, very spooky. You can just stare at them forever. Yeah. Well, in the same way, so Katie riffing off Drew's question asks, what's the strangest or most confusing story? And I think we could just hmm. say like all of the pyramid texts. <laughs> totally. Like I would love to know, like actually be able to understand those. I mean, context. I, I give pyramid texts on my graduate yes, language exams all the time. You got one. Mm -hmm. And really, pyramid texts, you can, you can do almost anything with them because there's lack of determinatives. Well, They're really so hard. Much, yeah. Yeah. There's so much, like, you needed to know that we've lost access yeah. to. Yeah. Um, Book of the Dead, I find, too. Book weird. of the Dead is hard. Yeah, it's, it's really, talking. really hard. You really know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And half the time it's like spells, like it's telling you what to do. And at yeah. the end it's like five red, five jars full of red pigment. And you're like, okay, so was it like this, this supposed to be spoken over these objects or are these used in some way in the ritual that this spell is telling you about? And well, because so many of these magical texts include glosses mm -hmm. in the margins that are then taken into the text when it's recopied yep. and they include the notes that are written by a high priest or somebody else. So you get... A book of the dead, which is like, do you know the 
the human is like a bird and the bird is flying like a phoenix or whatever it is. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get five jars of red, red pigment or whatever. And you're like, wait, how does this work? But it was probably a gloss or something added. And then mm -hmm. it's just um, been taken on board. Um, most confusing text. Strangest too. Strangest Man text. Man in his ba is weird. Man in his ba. That's very a very cerebral. Yes, you're exactly right because you actually don't know if he's mm -hmm. wishing to commit suicide or if he is wishing not to commit yeah. suicide, and it's not you can clear. Read it both ways. You can read it both ways, and it's not clear at all. And every time I try to say, "Oh, I get it," you don't get it. You don't get it at all. Um. Um, I mean, no, I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, there's so many texts that end right at the most interesting point. I was going to say, there's so many where we have big gaps mm -hmm. in stuff where it's like, if only this wasn't missing. Right. This would be cool. But there's nothing strange where you're like, oh, this is the secret to another world. Mm -hmm. In fact, Jordan and I will probably both agree that the more you read Egyptian, the more they're just people like us. Yeah. With... A regular language with well, senses of humor and then if you read like the bible you're like oh this is like the same yeah. as egypt like it's yeah. the same phrasing and people just know. trying to control the uncontrollable environment around them yeah. through spell and story and trying to to have some sort of understanding of all the craziness that's mm -hmm. happening around them as we all do that's yeah, the human say, condition like, confusing like academic documents can be confusing because a lot of times they're like shorthand mm -hmm. and things are left out but it's not strange but it's not strange confusing no. just because we are missing the context but the more egyptian you know the less strange things get yeah. and the more it becomes normal human which which may disappoint you because you start to think in that yeah as you know the language more you start to you know so uh, so i would who, who asked this question uh katie Katie. So I would, I would have Katie go towards Book of Caverns, Book yeah. of Earth. Book of Earth and Book of Caverns are strange. And, but there's sense there. And it's in well, a kind of code. Perfect. It's supposed to be strange. Yeah. It's supposed to be otherworldly. It's supposed to be unknown and yeah. scary and weird. And you'll get like a symbol of a child who is recreating his own rebirth. Yeah. And there's a sexual element to it that might upset you, but the child is recreating his own rebirth in a masturbatory way to re-become. And you'll have like these weird circle, this weird circle yeah, image written around it. Yeah. It's um, Things can get pretty interesting in those texts. So that's that's where I would yeah. go. The religious, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Religious texts. Are... Book of the Dead less so, though there are some strange, like there there's a 21st Dynasty new spell, and I can't remember the number of it, like 171 or something. I, I don't remember it. But it has a hermaphroditic female-male uh, divinity associated with it. And it's about the power of God being part female and part male. And there, there's um, and the rebirth aspect that you're mm -hmm. female and male and you need both of these things. Th those things can be strange yeah. and, and cool. And contradictory, I think, mm -hmm. we find a lot. Which mm -hmm. to the Egyptians would not have been an issue. But no. for us, we're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. You said so-and-so God created the earth and now you're saying it was actually... Ta yeah, and things and like all that of these things are possible. It's totally normal and fine. Yeah. Yeah. So confusing and strange for us, but not for them. Yeah. Cool questions. Um, okay, EMRS six 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 asks. <laughs> everyone has such cool um, handles. Um, this is a very interesting question as well. Were there any identifiable counterculture movements, i.e., equivalent to punks or hippies or juggalos? In ancient Egypt, it seems like there must have been. Punks, hippies, gigolos. Um, wow. Um, I guess Akhenaten. <laughs> you could consider yeah. him a counterculture movement. Yeah, he, but he's top-down counterculture yeah. movement. But certainly... I, I feel like you wouldn't... I feel like in cultures yeah. that have such strong senses of community yeah. and hierarchical and in a way like a caste system mm -hmm. in a sense you're not allowed to these type of things wouldn't have been for the most part yes i agree with you and in most societies that have this hierarchical understanding and organization the only people that are able to be punks hippies or gigolos are generally those the rich 
who have the privilege and material means yeah, like to do so. Yeah, like you prints and you might be kind of weird, like the artsy, weird, mm-hmm. like comrades that's like, I'm going to study the ancient past and go do all these things. You're like, yeah, okay, like... Like if we went and if we were able to time travel back to Woodstock and talk to all of the quote unquote hippies and find out where they came from, Mm -hmm. almost all of them would have come from middle class backgrounds. Almost all of them would have been white. Almost all of them had great privilege, even though they were living off of a shoestring and nothing Mm -hmm. and maybe wouldn't have seen it themselves. They weren't indigenous. They weren't black. They weren't, um, for the most part, people that, that had to survive and get along in society. They had the leisure to choose a different path and decide to do heroin for a year and see what that, where that got them. I was going to say, like, I don't think people had the time to think about being like, Oh, I'm going to be avant-garde and like fringe. It's like, no, you have to go plant the grain and like harvest it. And you don't have to like, you have one outfit anyway. So like, you're not going to be like, Oh, I'm going to dress a certain way and cut my hair weird. Yeah. Like you got your family would have been like, absolutely not. You're cut. Like, yeah. You know, you'd have shame, community shaming to make everyone kind of the same. And Hippies and punks are a way of being counterculture as a means of surviving the hierarchy that is imposed on them by culture that they're embedded into. Yeah. And if you, if that's your, your place, then the only place you're going to find that in Egypt, ancient Egypt, is going to be within that hierarchical scheme of things yeah. and i suppose i would tell um what is it emrs 666 to look to um the uh satire of the trades where you are telling young educated men you better sit down and learn your text you better learn to be a scribe or you're going to be one of these horrible professions. You're going to be eaten by a crocodile. You're going to, yeah, you could be a cobbler and have to deal with tanning yeah. and all of the smells yeah. all day long. Or you could be a fuller and have to deal with urine and grossness. And they go through all of the other professions and they're like, you want this? You don't want this. So be, so sit down, do your fucking work, be a scribe and yeah, everyone's going to be fine, right? Yep. It, but it does show that there is a generation above them that's like, Look, you privileged kids who are ge- being given everything with mm-hmm. the silver spoon. Do what I tell you and and stop with... It, it means the fact that they're telling them they have to be a scribe and trying to scare them into doing so means that there's a potential counterculture. I also have to think with counter like hippies and all that stuff, There's it has to be in a culture that prizes or enables individualism i agree completely which does not is not ancient egypt you're not you yeah. you're your family yeah so you're not going to do something that's going to harm your family or make you yeah like othered by your community and make people not want to work with you or talk to you or marry you or things like this yeah. where in america right you're individual so like you can choose to do this and like your family will be okay yeah. and like whatever they might not be happy with it yeah but i think we have to think about cultures where you're, you're, you know, you're your whole family, you're your community, your larger systems. That's not about you in any way, shape, or form. Right. And, you know, somebody like a punk is a counterculture creator who is creating art. It could be music, it could be visual, it could be fashion. Mm-hmm. And they're creating that art for consumption. And that art ends up being sold and bought. And, like, that's not, Egypt didn't have that. Well, Egypt like would have dude, had like making sidewalk art and like, you know, but everyone has reactions, you yeah. know, everyone has counterculture reactions in Egypt too. So that you have, you know, your, your fourth dynasty, which is all about the pyramid and how great it is. And the fifth dynasty is like, oh no, we would never do that. We're all priest Kings. Um, okay. But so, but yeah, so, so culture is always about reaction. And so we talk about counterculture and people are opting out of culture. They're not opting out of culture. They're just taking something that pre-exists and, and turning it into something else. And you could argue that the Egyptians were doing these kinds of things as well, that there were fashions, there were changes in clothing and coffin styles and literature in music. Maybe there was a, there was more stasis and continuity than there would be today. Things didn't move quite as fast, but there were still reactions to things. And you can still see in the, texts particularly in the instructions that the young people are not doing what the old people want them to and you could argue that old people always have thought that young people are not doing 
what they should be doing. They're not working hard enough. They're not listening hard enough. They're not obedient. They're being a pain in the ass. And this has been something that we have dealt with in patriarchal culture for from time immemorial. So yeah. 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 But I think the main thing is that where in society it's happening. So modern times, punks, hippies and stuff are, are not, they might be, yeah, the better off. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like a punk would be like somebody, I'm thinking of an early punk, like the Smith, like, um, not the Smiths, um, the Clash, mm-hmm. like a London 70s, you know, we, we grew up in London, we have nothing, we have no money, but there's still, and I'm not saying there's privilege necessarily in that, I think there is. but okay, well, like there's privilege in living in a city. I think there's privilege in being able to choose that lifestyle. There's privilege you don't have in to do X, Y, and Z for your family. There's or... privilege in being part of a colonial society that's yeah. benefiting from African and New World labor from those colonial interventions. And there may be unemployment within London, but people aren't like starving out and then dying of cholera. Yeah. They're able to have the leisure to be awesomely poor. And, well, and a lot of these, they're awesomely artistic. co-opting music, music yeah. culture from black people yeah, and making it into this new thing. Yeah. So, which, you know. And it's all highly political. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the ancient Egyptians weren't political, but it's in a different, different. less individualistic, um, less middle-class industrial, much more hierarchical based on the one big man kind of way. It's too, not, like, not going to work. Just the amount of people that would have been together. Yeah. Like, in most cases, you're in your little tiny village. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, to me, it's like, I think of counterculture. It's like in a big city with, like, millions of people. So let's so imagine. this, like, ability to fringe off into these different groups where if you're in a village with 50 people. So imagine you're in a Delta village with 50 people. And you're like, I'm going to go counterculture, motherfuckers, and watch me. They would shame you and not talk to you. <laughs> they would shame you, not talk to you, not give you any food. You would start starving. And you'd be like, fine, where do yeah. I carry the grain to? And what do you need me yeah. to do? And your family would be like, No. You're or, going to do this. Or maybe you would join the roving troupe of performers that would do yeah. like the Horace and Seth myth cycle in different villages sure. around around Egypt, which must have existed, yeah. right? And and so you would have a performance um, troupe and that it, it can get counterculture and that people are um, potentially anti-authoritarian in a funny ha-ha sort of way mm-hmm. or they, they push the boundaries a little bit. But yeah. there there were ways of of subverting the top of of the culture at least visibly so that people felt there was some sort of a balance whether there actually was a balance or not is arguable yeah so yeah, you yeah. Could have run away into the hills or something and yeah did whatever yeah but yeah okay so maybe but i think just not in our in the same way we see it now no no you don't have enough privilege you don't have enough mm-hmm. leisure and, yeah. and for those at the top of society, what they have to do, what they have to feed into it to maintain their place is so great that they wouldn't ever punk out. No. Because they want to keep... Not worthwhile. They want to keep where they are in society. It's, it's not... If you have a whole bunch of people who are suffering, then you might punk out. Yep. So you need industrialism. You need, yep. you need a middle class that's been fucked over by the elites. Mm-hmm. A big middle class. And if you only have elites and a whole bunch of peasants, it's not going to work yep. in the same way. The necessities are to take. Yeah, because generally punks don't come from the upper classes. Yeah. They're going to come from a pissed middle. off working class. Uh, hippies are going to come from an upper middle class, middle class kind of reality. But you're, you're not going to, you know, the upper class is like, no, no. Do you want to keep what you have? Mm. You like this? You want you this? Like okay, let's t- let's go to Harvard. Okay, mom. Okay, dad. <laughs> and yep. then you and you you go. So yes. Yeah. Okay, our next question is from Lexi. Hey, Lexi. So she says, depressing topic. Oh, we love those. We We turn them into beauty. But I've been reading about the abuse of archaeology by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. They sent archaeologists around the world to excavate and track, quote-unquote, Germanic culture to justify their invasions as, quote-unquote, retaking the heritage and land of their ancestors. While they had an obsession with Atlantis... Um, was there any such work or connection with ancient Egypt? Are you aware of any excavations pre-war? Was Rommel's offensive in North Africa part of attacking the British forces or an attempt to regain mythological territory? You know, I don't even know. I don't know about Rommel. 
And I don't, I don't know about the Nazi obsession with things ancient Egyptian. I mean, it's, I go back to all of Thomas Snyder's work. Yeah. With all um, the Nazi Egyptologists. Yes. Um, but I mean, from there were a lot of Jewish German Egyptologists yes, too. That had to leave Steindorf mm -hmm. in particular. I think a lot of them mainly propagated the idea of, you know, the um, the in, uh, dynastic race theory, mm -hmm. where it was like making Egyptians not African, black, where it was like, oh, they were, you know, from the Near East, and that's brought in their technology and their civilization, and that they were white and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if there was any like Nazi ideology like tracking itself back to Egypt. Yeah, that I don't know. And I haven't looked into Nazi writings or Nazi interests. I mean, we have Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So say, it's like, like something that... was more that, like biblical. It just happened to be... True, you're right. You're right. They're yeah, looking they're for looking the for Lost this, Ark and they yeah. just, it just happens to be in Egypt because Egypt invades and gets yeah. it or whatever it is. Um, there was a yeah. lot of excavations that were... They had to leave once the war started. Yeah. Right, like, isn't that part of how the Nefertiti bus got into Berlin is that they had... When did... Amber, can you look when Borchert brought the Nefertiti bus into Berlin? Because I think it's early. It's like it's 1911 World, or something. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. The, the World War interrupts. And then, you know, the yeah. excavations. I mean, the fact that the Nefertiti bust is displayed in Berlin the way that it is and continues to be displayed in this special room in the mm -hmm. Egyptius Museum in, in which you have to lower your, 1912, yeah, in which you have to lower your voices and um, show her a reverence, but she's still like this kidnapped queen, mm -hmm. like Helen of Troy in a way. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if anybody writes about it overtly. So um, I think we'd have to do a little more research on this, Lexi, to see what we could potentially find my my quick and dirty answer is that if it's connected to biblical things yes it, there would be a great interest in in acquiring materials from Egypt if it's connected to beauty and whiteness like Nefertiti seems to look then mm -hmm. I would though her skin is tan it's an issue but the way it's usually displayed and certainly the way it's photographed and certainly the way it's shown on German postage stamps is just a white image and profile. Um, it, it connects to these ideas. Well, and I have to think like, like racial science definitely played a part. And, you know, some of the Egyptologists, American Egyptologists were proponents of that as well. I mean, yeah. the Nazis got eugenics and stuff from us anyway. Yeah. So, you know, and all this collecting of the skulls and measuring skulls and all this. You and know, just read anything by, by Reisner about work in on. Sudan or, or yeah. in Egypt and you get an idea of where this quote-unquote racial science was mm -hmm. leading people. So the, the colonial interest of going into Africa and West Asia and, and pulling objects out and collecting them, I mean, I think you could conclude that it has the intent of making the white person superior. There could also be collecting to make the white person look better, um, to make the African look superstitious, mm -hmm. slavish, uh, inferior, yeah. and thus to give that mm -hmm. white, quote-unquote, Germanic person a cultural superiority that they wouldn't have otherwise. It's, it's a way of maybe... Um, making that clearer to a middle class and upper class consuming public who, who's able to visit museums. That makes, that makes sense. I mean, J. Paul Getty was the same. So if you look at the collecting of John Paul Getty, who has his M Malibu villa, mm -hmm. he's all interested in collecting what is Greek, what is Roman, was very less, very much um, less interested in collecting from Egypt. And if he did, there are these portraits of Greco slash Egyptian yeah. uh, looking images and that he was okay with, but he didn't want to have anything to do with, with mm -hmm. African acquisitions. And I think this, um, the, the Nazis were similar. Yeah. I remember from um, Tomas's lectures, like they had like, they had plans to enact like a Nazi Africa. And I remember the stamp was like the swastika over like a palm tree Ooh. and all these things. Um, so there was like, plan to do this, but I think it fell through at the end of the war, obviously. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's what you were saying about to lift white people up by making people of color look backward and yeah. all these other things, yeah. part of that plan. Yeah, to, to, um, to show a temple and to say, oh, these stupid people believe that you had to do offerings every hour on the hour the sun wouldn't rise is a way to simplify and make people seem stupid so that you look like mm-hmm. this superior race. It's It can be very cleverly done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. But, yeah, there's a lot of materials we can post on Discord about it as well, um, just not our background. Yeah. But, yeah, I think we would know more things if, if that was going on. I think just, yeah, they weren't as interested. They were more into Greco-Roman and weird yeah. Viking Germanic yeah. propaganda. Yeah. And apparently Atlantis. Yeah, I don't, yeah, Atlantis is Greek. Atlantis is Terra, Santorini, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense that there would be an interest in, in that. And, and utopian then utopian place. You see how it can, that sure. how that connects to Egypt. There might be some interest, yeah. right? I'm tracking about Alexandria. There would be interest in, yeah. in anything Greco-Roman Egypt. There would probably be interest. Yep. But very interesting, and yeah, the Nazis are. Uh... The Nazis are going to Nazi. Yep. Nazis always going to Nazi. Nazis are the patriarchy. They are quintessence of of patriarchal exclusion and control. And you can see them making a comeback. Yeah. Oh, of course. Like with apparently like medieval and. Um, like Northern European studies, whatever yep. you want to call that, with yep. Vikings and Renaissance and medieval studies and, yeah. you know. Even Tolkien. Yeah. Especially Tolkien is um, yeah, associated with all of this. about black elves, which is yeah. just like get over yourselves. Yeah. But, yes. Okay. But good question, Lexi. So Joshua asks, so this is a super Egyptological question. So you mentioned in a previous podcast the curiosity of the north-south temple deities. Like certain deities have a north-south temple. Ah. Well, there are some temples that are, you know, east-west. Right. In specific, uh, Kansu. Right. It's north-south. Right. So Josh was looking at this for his MA thesis, but he wasn't able to look into it further. So he's interested to know more about this and what other deities have the same north-south correlation. As Kansu the child is more on the afterlife side of things and the adult hawk-headed Kansu is more on the living side, is that a okay statement to make? Or And then what are the other north-south deities you think of in the same manner? I think that the north-south... Or why south, is Kansu getting that then? Right. The north-south is always going to be, to be connected with the living king. Mm-hmm. And Kansu is the child of Amun and Mut at Karnak. Amun is king of hiddenness, king of the gods. He's a great god. He's off someplace else. Mut is this fierce and and often vicious um, matriarch. And the two of them produce Khonsu, the moon god, who is then the reigning living king. Yes, he's a child of them, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean he's necessarily a child in all of his images. And if you go to Khonsu temple, you see Khonsu as a man, Mm -hmm. as a strong man who's there ruling Egypt. And if we were going to go to another place, like say we'd go to Edfu Temple, mm-hmm. which is also north-south, and you say Edfu is a product of Isis and Osiris, um, or sorry, Horus of Edfu, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Horus of Edfu is a product of Isis and Osiris, and Osiris is dead, 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 mm-hmm. killed by Seth and, you know, was king of Egypt and all of these things. Isis is the matriarch, often vicious, <laughs> they're always the same, um, but there is the mother of Horus, and Horus is the living, breathing king on earth. Mm-hmm. And so it's a north-south kind of thing. And you can tell, I get super excited about this, that the east-west is the rising and setting. It's the death and rebirth. It's the constant cycle. Mm-hmm. But the north-south, you make that 90-degree turn, and you're, you're kind of off of that path. It's like... Um, it's like the two different types of time. Yeah, kind like of. Nechet, the cyclical time. Is Nechet. And then Jet is just eternity forever. Like the king. Yeah. Like... Sort of. It's almost like taking yourself out of time completely because the east-west cycle can be Nechech and Jet. It can be the sun is rising and the sun is setting, but also there's this Osirian long stretch of time that just goes on forever and forever in both directions. It's just a long line. But if you've got this stretch of time east-west, but you need to get off of it and like live a life, Mm -hmm. you take a turn. 
you take a 90 degree turn you go into life it's like being mortal it is you you go off and you you live your life however long that is is it five years is it 20 years is it 50 years and then when you die you make the turn back to east west and you go back on that normal the normal east west is what the the rivers the lakes the streams the the mountains all of us are on but humanity in a sense is that north south it's like we're special it's like we have an awareness of our own weird uh, capabilities and potentials and our we have a we have a an awareness of our finite finite nature but we're still willfully and willingly making the turn off of the path mm-hmm. going somewhere kind of on our own, kind of away from the gods, kind of with the gods, and then we'll come back. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at an Egyptian temple complex, like say you're at Karnak, right? Um, So we walk through the front gate Mm -hmm. of Karnak, 30th dynasty gate, neck to Nabo. We go through the first courtyard. We walk through the second pylon, Horem Heb. Where do we go? Hypostyle Hall. And then we go, the third pylon's almost not there. Um, We keep walking, we go through the Middle Kingdom Court, whatever the hell that is, yeah. and then what do we get to at the end of the Middle Kingdom Court? Do you get to the Achmenu? You get to the Achmenu. Yeah. How do you enter the Achmenu? From the side. From the right yeah. side. And you turn. And so that would be the west. Is that the western side? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And then you make a turn to the left. To go north. So- and you north. go on north-south axis. Yeah. So there's, and who built the Achmenu? Third. It's like an exam we're having here. She's <laughs> like, like, ah, stop I'm it. Like, ah. I know, I see it in your eyes. You're like, stop examining me. But you're doing really well. You're perfect. You're doing really perfect. So it's Thomas III builds that during his lifetime yep. to celebrate his lifetime. The temple is is created with tent poles, yeah. something that is not of the gods. It is human-made. Mm-hmm. It's to go on to camp on campaign to like slaughter other humans and bring a whole bunch of money and shit ton of wealth back to Egypt. But you're... When when you take that Tutmos the Third turn, you're in Tutmos the the Third kingship land. Well, and it's also like plants and life, and it's all the stuff he encountered on campaign. Yeah, it's it's a yeah because you you have the botanical gardens there. You also have, interestingly, you get to the end of the Ahmenu. The ancestors, right? There's the ancestors Mm -hmm. going in that north south. All of the different kings, and at the end of that, you get a solar shrine, Mm -hmm. which is open to the sky, and it turns east-west again and you go towards the west i think the altar goes towards the west i'll have to look and you go up some steps Mm -hmm. but then that solar altar in that north-south temple is on an east-west axis and so the egyptians are messing with this they're like oh yeah the king built this and it's the living king but the living king is based on an east-west continuity of forever time Mm -hmm. that never ends and karnak is full of things like this so if you say we go back to our first pylon built by nectanebo and we go in there, what's immediately to the right, but the Temple of Millions of Years built oh, by Ramses yeah. III, also north-south. And when he built it, it was meant to be north-south. Mm-hmm. It's a 90-degree it's a turn that creates a living, breathing kingship right then. And so it's a, it's a, a way it's of... It's, what? It's weird that it's north-south. Why? The Temple of Millions of Years yeah. are usually east-west. Yeah. Unless they're in Karnak. Yachmanu is also a temple of millions of years. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially, yes. But the other north-south temple in the Karnak larger land, or the the Theban larger landscape, is Luxor Temple. Yeah. And Luxor Temple is dedicated specifically to kingship. Yeah. Amun-Re and Mut are there, but it's the the Ipet, Mm -hmm. the harem, the production, the bull of his mother... I produce myself through my own mother and create my own future manifestation. I am a sexual being that creates all of these sons. I am the dynasty. It's like, you can also think of the North-South as dynastic succession of father to son to grandson, which is why you have your ancestors in the mm-hmm. Ahmenu, right? Yeah, you have all these different the kings. Ma. Yes. The royal. Yes. Or the, yeah, the royal ka. And you could say... Maybe that the edifice of Taharka has mm-hmm. a north south, though not. It, it could have east west. It depends well, on how you understand Osiris it. Chapels are all north. north yes, like the Osiris chapels. Yeah, they they often have a side entrance mm-hmm. that goes north south, yeah. and they're often associated with kingship mm-hmm. in particular. Which king put it up? Which God's wife of Amun yep. put it up? So I think more work needs to be done on this, but 
the kinds of things that I like thinking about are what it means when there's a ritual mm-hmm. and the ritual is moving in a certain direction, right. but then you stop the ritual and you make a shift. Yeah. And if your ritual is movement holding a bark and you make a 90 degree turn, it's a big shift. It's a big mm-hmm. change. You're not going there and back again. You're making a turn. You're going off-roading. Mm-hmm. You're going into some weird other land that's not, in a way, not protected by the gods, but only protected by human men. Mm. And we can divinize these human men and call them great gods yep. and great ancestors, but it's still like, it's still off-roading away mm-hmm. from the gods. It's like, okay, we're going to cut, we're going to go over here. We'll shortcut. come back. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to come back, but we need to like break away a little bit. And so that, that North South is just, it's, it's super cool and it affects the light. So like every temple and very little work has been done on this, yeah. how, Solar oh, yeah. light hits these different temples at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. When the like the Stonehenge moment of Karnak yep. is, you know, where the equinox hits in, in Karnak and it's right there between the pylons. What happens for the north-south? The north-south axis must have been a moment of solstice. Like think of the equinoxes for when the sun is right in between the temple pylons mm-hmm. of Karnak. And then think of the solstices when it moves the, to the north or moves to the, the south. Stars rising of sol- like Sirius or something. Yes. Then? It's like when the sun is farthest from us mm-hmm. or closest to us. And that's when you bring in the, the Horus mm-hmm. uh, element, the king element. And that's really cool. And I'd love to see more work done with that. That is cool. By the, by the young. The young. Not by me. Young, I'm, I'm too old to do this. The young and the, the youths can work on this stuff. Yeah. It's very, it's very interesting, actually, which ones are north-south. And, yeah. And I think within, yeah, the larger, like, Karnak space, especially, how they're functioning together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, those are all my questions. Oh, wow. Well, great. So they were short, but I think a good, a yeah. good bunch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but really good questions. Thank you all. Thanks for asking. We'll Super fun. Do another for... November, so yeah. think of things, just you know, talk, throw it in the Discord. And Jordan and I are so thrilled that we're growing. Yeah. Our podcast is growing, our Substack is growing, and to see all of this interest is just really—it's wonderful. Yeah. And it, it, you know, I I was sitting with Amber and Jordan today, and I'm like, I wonder what's going on on Facebook. And I went onto Facebook and I looked at some of the comments. I'm like, holy shit, how did I deal with this back like, in the and day? I'm not off. And I'm not responding to this one, this one, this one. And so it's either vitriol or crazy or, or like a little QAnon and then a reasonable one. And, and so there, there's reasonable ones there, but you know, social media is, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to continue to post our awesomeness on the social media, but we're going to talk to you not through the social media, but through other means. So if you want to talk to us directly, become a patron, get on our Discord. You can talk to all of us, ask us questions, and we will answer. And the conversation is so much more mm-hmm. elevated <laughs> and yeah. um, normal and, and much less crazy. So get on the Discord. A lot of fun episodes upcoming yeah. that we're yeah. going to be recording. with some guest interviews yeah. coming up. Maybe some book some book stuff yeah. um, about a certain book that Amber and I have. Are we going have. to announce that? Do you want to do a little announcement or we wait? I mean, we could. But do then you... maybe we should because then it forces you to do it. Oh, fuck. <laughs> okay. All right. You, you what announce it. What are we going to do? We're gonna... Okay. I'll tell everyone. So there has been something that I have avoided, avoided in my career thus far. And what I have avoided is reading the Elizabeth Peters Amelia novel. Amelia Peabody books. The yeah. Amelia Peabody written by Elizabeth Peters, who is also Barbara Mertz, and I have not read them. I have not read them. And when I started to read them, I was already an Egyptologist, and I became very distracted by my Egyptology. It was not an escape. It was not fun, and I stopped reading them. And now I am going to read them, and we are going to do an Amelia Peabody book club. start with the first one. Club. Yeah, so we'll do Crocodile Crocodile in the Sandbank. We'll get Amber back in here. (laughs) <laughs> um, and it Am- will be- Amber and Jordan love these books yes. more than you can possibly imagine. So, and they're so mad at me that I haven't read yes. them. So I'm the bad, naughty child who hasn't done what They'll she's supposed Kara's to. First read through and it. they're going to troll me. Yes. And if you want to watch or listen 
to Amber and Jordan trolling me as I go through the books. I'm like, wait, I don't get it. There, yeah. It's enjoyed. This is going to be bad. Amber was just like, I just took a quiz. And this quiz has these questions. And I got 100%. And who wouldn't get 100%? And I'm like, no. me? And and so it's going to be, it's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. And, um, and now it's been stated and recorded. It's so stated and recorded. It. I have to do it. But I'm working on the coffin stuff. But I should finish I'm, I'm on Ramsey's two right now, and then I have to read the book, and then I have to write a book proposal or two. I have to write two book proposals, don't I, Amber? Well, you can, like, regurgitate material. Yeah. No, I can't for these. <laughs> these are new. These are new. Very, very new. No regurgitation for these book proposals. One is going to be a biography of Harry Horror. Oh, oh, new books. Yes. This one. Okay, and okay. the other one is going to be about, um, it, yeah, it's like, right now I've got The Goddess's Guide of Smashing the Patriarchy. I like that one. Yeah, so I think that's what we're going to do. But it's, you know, I have to write these two proposals and then see what I can, what I can do. But, um, and then read Crocodile. And then read the Amelia Peabody series as I have been instructed. Yes. So it'll be fun. It'll be super fun. And I hope there are fans out there and we'll start. We should put together like an image on the Facebook and on the other thing, on the Instagram and let people know that this is. So they can read. But even if you haven't read, I mean, we'll be also going through like the Egyptological. Like aspects, the history, like you know what site they're digging at. We'll talk a little bit about like the actual site and give some background on it. So it won't just be like pure book club book. I hope to learn things. I will learn things, won't I? It's great. No, they're very. Yeah. There's a lot to learn in them, and a lot you know about like Egyptological history, which um, I'm very bad at. And I think everyone knows that. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to know what they found, which is bad. Yeah. I should know more about Egyptological history. But it's good. History. We can get. We can talk. Talk that. So it's good. There's a new cool book coming out from Kate Shepard about like, um, I forget the title. It's like something on the terraces or something tea like that. Tea on the terrace. And it's like all about like them getting tea. and. Yeah, I've read a little bit about it. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be by, good. It's yeah. going to be really good. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Okay. She's good. Well, um, we'll leave it there. But thank you all. And we'll see you next time on After Lives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack After Lives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on After Lives with Karakuni.